Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I've got an opportunity to sit down with Caleb Bush, Managing Director of Australia and New Zealand of Project Worldwide. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Now, just describe Project Worldwide for people that don't know what that actually means. Yeah, so to, look, before to describe Project Worldwide, I need to talk about George P. Johnson. So yep. George P. Johnson uh, was a real man. He grew up on the Great Lakes of Michigan in Detroit. His family had a sail-making and flag-making company. Uh, and just post the time of Henry Ford creating the Model T in Detroit, sort of you know, the birthplace of automotive, um, George's, fam, George's business uh, started taking, I suppose, sail-making equipment, flag-making equipment, and creating some of the world's first auto-marketing assets to help um, the oh. early pioneers of the automotive industry um, showcase their wares. So. A uh, hundred years on um, now, um, Project Worldwide was created in 2010 by the grandsons of George P. Johnson. It's still a privately owned business. Uh, and George P. Johnson was a event experiential marketing company. And they saw that to have cut through an impact with the clients they were working with, they needed to be able to deliver services in other marketing disciplines. So do they still make sales? They don't make sales, but they did produce the world's largest flag uh, a few years ago for the American government, which was a bit of a random fact. But um, Wow, okay. Um, so the project was created in 2010. Uh, it has about 18 agencies globally under the Project Worldwide banner. Mm -hmm. uh, those agencies are digital agencies, social agencies, PR agencies, advertising agencies. And so uh, George P. Johnson is still one of those uh, and is the founding agency of the Project Worldwide Group. Uh, and then the, my job here in Australia is to, to manage the agencies within that network. Okay. Which is exciting. So that's your, as the um, managing director of Project Worldwide, you over, in this region, in this you, region over, you oversee the various yeah. agencies within that. So there's Spinifex Group, uh, which is a interactive content company based here in Sydney. Um, they do amazing projections for projects like Vivid. Oh, okay. Um, and have worked on Olympic Games and they build a lot of uh, interactive corporate content. Uh, you've got Dig and Fish in Melbourne. They are a, uh, I, I would call a, a pretty modern hybrid kind of agency. Um, they work around organizing ideas that can be amplified, activated or advertised. So you know, they have the ability, multiple, multiple disciplinary agency. Uh, then you've got George P. Johnson, which is in Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland and Perth. Uh, and the newest agency as part of the network is Dark Horse. And they're a, a luxury brand marketing agency based in New Zealand. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we don't have to go back that far, maybe 10 years, 20, man, probably 20 years, when all of these capabilities, skills, expertise were seen as what was called below the line. Yes. You know, and that they were somehow, there was the above the line, which was all the big agencies that we know, and then there was yeah. below the line, which was everyone else. Yeah. It's funny how the line doesn't seem to be so clear anymore, is it? No, I think 
I would say that the digital transformation that has happened globally in the last 10 years has blurred the lines between B2B, B2C, above the line, below the line, um, and really through the line. Through the line. And now we're talking about customer centricity. And I think everyone's sort of moving in that direction. We still get marketers and procurement people come to us and go, we're looking at uh, our below the line spend, or we're looking for a through the line agency. It's funny how that language still holds on when it's not necessarily either helpful or relevant. 100%. And I think quite often what we are struggling with, our, even with our own clients, particularly in the IT industry, is that they talk within their own internal jargon and no one else can understand them. And I think marketers fall victim to that all the time. We're talking about above, through, experiential, experience, events. There's, there's, you could write a book just on buzzwords from the marketing industry. Well, you, uh, in fact, I think there's uh, even a big online dictionary of all the uh, buzz terms that uh, people use. A lot of uh, uh, TLAs, that's three-letter acronyms, yeah. so uh, you know, they're just thrown in to confuse people. Going back to above the line, above the line, you know, speaking of the Mad Men era and everyone loves that series, the TV series, but that's really where people thought of brand building, didn't they? That was Correct. The above line agency was the place that you went to get your brand sort of almost defined and amplified. Yep, and if I think to the Mad Men TV show, the world was a very constructed place. You know, there was a place for men, there was a place for women, there was a... Uh, you know, there was a certain type of way that you had to act and behave as part of society. And I think that rule book has been completely thrown out the window over the last 20 or 30 years. And now that that's happened, um, all of a sudden, I think the way that we communicate to each other and the way that we interact, particularly with the onset of the iPhone, um, is it's completely different. So um, great film, um, great era, great, you know, but, you know, it's quite nostalgic, I suppose, in that sense. But it's held on, hasn't it, in the industry? Because we still see brands today doing the brand work through traditional advertising, primarily. They you know? do. And, uh, yeah. and the industry even celebrates it, you know, because yep. when you go to award shows, there's the TV awards and then cinema awards and they're the, the, the sort of broadcast ones are the main ones and then we get the digital and there seems to be a, uh, an unbelievable long line of digital awards yep. for everything from apps to you know websites to all sorts of things yeah and i think you're just starting to now see integrated awards come into into play so you know how are you connecting the above the line television commercial, which is your mass media outreach platform, into your you know one to one digital communication through to the in store experience, and um, I think that the traditional advertising agencies are definitely trying to better understand the below the line uh, space, and we're getting into above the line and below the line, um, and at the same time. Well, let's say, let's call them broadcast and non-broadcast. Yeah. Because in a way, that's really what we're talking about. You know, mass media is the traditional, you know, brand building tool. Yeah. 
You know, and in fact, I remember, I think it was Harold Mitchell years ago describing uh, advertising as a canon, the media mm -hmm. canon. You put as much cash into it as possible and aim it towards the audience and keep firing until you yeah. win the sales battle. And he did very well out of that. Yeah, of uh, course. And that, but at the same time, that's 100% correct. You know, I think it's the traditional model of um, you shoot the canon and, and make a big splash and, and see what sticks. I think the reality today is that brands probably aren't prepared to spend as much money just to see what sticks. Uh, and they're now starting to use the data that exists within their organization to probably better have a better profile of the customer and try to maybe shoot rather than the cannon. Uh, I was going to say shoot the bullet, but that's probably politically not correct. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. But yeah, you know, be much more targeted. Exactly. In the way, and even that's got the military overtones, but be more focused, focused. on individuals. Yeah. And, and really, because one of the promises of digital was that we're going to be able to interact with individuals. We could personalise and, and have those one-on-one -on -one interactions at scale. Yeah. And so... It hasn't really happened, though, because so much of the online advertising is just mass media. Just exactly. dumped on... I think millions you, of people at a low cost. You talk to a media agency and they'll say that programmatic is changing the way that you know brands talk to customers, but really that's an algorithm that is trying to place you know, data sets of where people might be and, and to talk to them. It's not actually an individual conversation. Um, in the experiential space, there are some interesting developments that are happening. Um, they're now starting to use the data to better understand maybe what a customer journey might be inside of that event experience. So for the large B2B companies, you're seeing uh, there'll be a registration site that you would register to attend. You'll put your data, your information into that, and you'll tick a bunch of boxes about what you're trying to achieve or do or get out of that event. And then from there, Traditionally, all of that would just be captured and you'd turn up on site and you'd be given a badge and you'd wander around an expo floor and attend a session and you'd be none the wiser as to whether you were actually getting the right content or information. Um, now those lists are being procured individually for you by those large organisations. So from the very first touch point at arriving at that event through to you know the content that you're receiving, the sessions that you're sitting in, uh, the third-party vendors that might be attending that expo have all been specifically curated for you. So I think it's it's the very first step in a rapid change in what's going to happen. Over and look, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because yeah. social media, anyone that's using social media is actually putting out onto the internet a lot of information yeah. about themselves. Whether they're in a... B2B role or as a consumer in B2C, yeah. they're actually giving out a lot of signals. Even if they're curating, they're giving out signals about what they're interested in. And I would argue that the LinkedIn platform is probably the B2C Instagram. You know, so you can find out a lot of information about someone by going through their LinkedIn account and seeing what type of articles they're reading, what are they liking, what are they posting themselves. Who they're connected who to. Who they're connected to. So if you can, and that's public information that is accessible to everyone, and if you can somehow link that to your strategy of you know, profiling of customer, uh, you can start to 
build a pretty good picture of who you want to talk to. And what I like about that is there's a quid pro quo, which hasn't happened in many areas, which is you're using the information to enhance my experience, Correct. make it make it more worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, which is, and I say it hasn't happened previously because, you know, you get spanned by email because they've got your email address and maybe your age yeah. or that you're a man or a woman. And, you know, so immediately they just bombard you with messages. But yeah. in actual fact, there is a transaction here, a value transaction, which says if I'm going to give you this information, and I most people are already, they don't realise it, but they are already, then a responsible brand experience would be to use it to make them love the brand more, wouldn't it? Exactly. And, and, and there's, so there's the, the brand needs to respect that person's privacy and information, but at the same time, I don't think anyone in the world would argue that if they can have a better experience by the brand understanding a little bit more about them and who they are and, and curating that journey a little bit, then I think you, you we're all going to be a little bit happier with the interactions that we're having with um, those broadcasted messages that we're receiving or those one-to-one um, -one interactions that we're having. So I think it's a really exciting time to be kind of playing in that space. Um, and I think that the brands that have will do it well um, will see a huge uplift in the way that um, yeah, they engage or and ultimately they sell their product because, you know, I, I'd argue with anyone, we're all in the sales business um, in one way, shape or form. And that might be, you know, selling a shoe or it might be selling a global IT package to a, a huge corporate. Um, at the end of the day, all of these messages are driving um, a sale. Well, you know, in any commercial enterprise, revenue and profit is the scorecard. So in the game of business, yeah. it's the way we keep score of who's doing well and who's not. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that the only reason we're doing it is because we're there to make money, no. but it's certainly the scorecard you have to keep an eye keep on. An eye on. I know a lot of conversations with not-for-profits, I go, you realise that the term not-for-profit doesn't mean you're not allowed to make a profit. Yeah. Because even for a not-for-profit, Profit keeps them the doors open. Yeah, and I think you know if they if you flip that on its head, they need to acquire revenue from to do what they're going to do. do. What they're going to do, and yeah. so they are selling themselves to potential donors uh, or other brands to you know, invest in the good goodwill and what they're trying to do in the world. So absolutely, I think that the the sales piece is important to remember. Like, what is the outcome that these companies are trying to achieve, or the objectives that they want to measure uh, and then from there you can start to kind of craft that message backwards whereas I think once upon a time going all the way back to the Mad Men era um, it was just shoot that cannon as loud as you can and hopefully a bunch of stuff is going to stick at the other end. Yes make your uh, brand ad and then get the reach and frequency that you need and if you repeat it enough that somehow the audience will be brainwashed into buying your brand. But that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Not really. And I, there was an interesting article that I read the other day. I think it was in a Forbes magazine. I was at the airport. It was saying that um, global consumer, consumerism reached an all-time high in about the mid-1990s in terms of um, the amount of products an individual would purchase in a year. 
Um, so I would say, you know, in the 90s, you might purchase 15 to 20 T-shirts a year. I'm, I'm making this up. Mm. Um, now you're more probably going to buy three to five T-shirts a year. The amount of money that you're spending, interestingly, is still the same on 15 to 20 T-shirts. It's just that your perception is I prefer to buy something that might be of a higher quality. Uh, it might be more sustainable. Um, so we're still spending the same amount of money, if not more, than the 90s. But where consumerism, in terms of the amount of products that we're buying, has come down. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily true. But, no, it reminds but it's inter- an interesting kind of concept. It's like that uh, that saying, you know, the person with the most things when they die wins. wins. Yeah. But in actual fact, no one wins. No. <laughs> you can't this take is, it with you. It's just a relative who has to unpack the <laughs> unpack the box for you. Because, yeah. Exactly. Um, although, what flips it on its head though is the, I suppose the rise of the middle uh, income space in China. And, of and course. You know, and India. In India. And, and, and many and of the... And, yeah. you know, those emerging global markets mm-hmm. uh, where we've got some clients who are very focused on, on those spaces. And um, some of even Australian brands are very focused on how to tap into you know those emerging economies. And we're fortunate being part of a global network that we're able to hopefully provide them some insight on how to launch your brand in, in Asia because I guarantee you that if you take the madman approach of shooting a cannon in China where there are billions of people and multiple you know language barriers and social media platforms that don't exist in every other part of the world, yeah. you could spend a lot of money and not get a lot of cut through. And also that uh, traditional advertising, broadcast advertising, especially in China because yeah. it's government controlled, Correct doesn't necessarily get the cut through that, say, a Western market like the US or Australia or or the the like gets. It's interesting you should bring up social platforms. Do you remember when there was a a brief period of word of mouth agencies? It was about the late 90s, early 2000s, where suddenly word of mouth was becoming the way to actually build brands and build business. A friend of mine said to me about 12 months ago that she was going to work for a word of mouth agency and I questioned her um, whether or not it was a good strategic kind of Oh, they're still around, are they? There's still a couple around. So, um, yeah, I'm not not familiar with the concept of word of mouth agencies. I believe that everyone is a participant in some kind of, you know, word of mouth experience, so... Well, I, you know, I had to laugh the first time I heard someone saying they were a word of mouth agency because word of mouth's been happening since time immemorial. Yeah. You know, people would stand there and talk to each other and go, oh, I just bought this new product X and it's really good or I just had trouble with product X and it's not yeah. very good. You know, this was the way we actually got information from our friends. And every time there was a research project, it said the most trusted source of information was word of mouth from friends. So then why don't we set up an agency that taps into the word of mouth? Trouble is we've got social media now. Yeah. And everyone is potentially a media broadcaster. Yep. Because we can share our every thought, every experience, every uh, insight into every brand and product. And I've got young cousins whose dream in life it is to be an Instagram celebrity and <laughs> never have to work a day and be endorsed by products and, you know, be able to essentially be an ambassador for for these businesses, which is kind of scary. But that that is the shift that we've, we've seen. And I think that's where marketers have probably been uh, challenged the most around, you know, how to 
um, provide their clients with, I suppose, a, a more evenly distributed portfolio of how to spend their money. And I think clients probably are struggling just as well, brands are struggling just as much with that division of spend as much as agencies are trying to work out how to make sure they're on the front foot of what that new kind of tech or next gen kind of concept of marketing might be. Mm. So that's where sort of, you know, I think there's there's a role to play for the traditional agencies. Um, there's a role to play for those emerging technologies. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's understanding the actual customer that you're trying to talk to. Because if you're selling diapers, uh, you're probably going to use social media to talk to the mums. Um, but I don't think the kids themselves are really going to understand much about, you know, how to use the phone. If you're selling um, insurance products to, you know, 65-year-olds uh, for and retirement plans, I'd probably say social media is not going to be the best platform again. So, In actual fact, it is. Facebook uh, skews really well for the older demographic. Yep, that's actually, that's true. So, you know, you, and, and so, you know, we've even got social media platforms yep. that actually suit different demographics. It is. And, and, you know, speaking of Facebook, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg ever thought that he would become the, you know, uh, 65-year-old platform of choice. He was trying to be trendy and cool and have all of his college friends, you know, be on the same network. So, Well, that's where it started. But yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, how, you know, all of these, uh, the most successful platforms allow people to connect. Yep. They allow them to share. They, uh, and, and often allow them to be creative in the way that they do that. Yeah. You know, add an extra dimension beyond just you know, sending a boring old email to someone. You can put video and stream things and all sorts of stuff. You know? I think that's really where it's become so powerful and really changed the balance between the traditional you know, broadcast tools that brands have used in the past against everyone, yeah. everyone gets to actually have their say back at them. And that's, you know, something from a brand experience perspective, that's that's the power now that sits in, in I suppose, those brand experience agencies' hands is that you can help brands have multiple interactions with their target audience. It's not just anymore about, you know, the above the line or the, you know, the canon approach um, to, you know, mass marketing through broadcast channels. I think there's a lot other ways to, to communicate your message, which is exciting. And it's great for the customer. But quite counter to, um, you know, Professor Byron Sharp's book, you know, how brands grow, what marketers don't know, because he talks about going back to mass marketing, you know, to actually do the uh, something for everyone. But you're not talking about uh, not targeting lots of people. You're just talking about targeting them in a way that is going to engage them better than just a general hit. Yeah, exactly. I think that whatever the message is that you're putting out there needs to be constructed in a way that still the most amount of people can see it, but the language and tone of whatever that piece of communication is, is actually directly targeted at them. So that's that's probably slightly confusing in, in the sense, but it... it uh, it's it's mass reach, yeah. but targeted yeah. to groups or individuals within that mass. I think as well, the cost of traditional broadcast has come down significantly. You know, we're sitting here able to do a podcast, you know, uh, in a fairly, I would say, affordable manner. Uh, 
To, yeah. say, to say the least. To say the least. And so, you know, the ability to share that message with potentially millions of people um, is is easy. And I think that has probably affected some of the traditional agencies more than others because gone are the days where you can roll out a big budget television commercial, apart from maybe the Super Bowl, which is where I suppose everyone's the halo of, you know, the global television audience still looks for that 30-second TV ad. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's still the sharing of that on social, social media, media that takes it outside of the US. Yeah. It's the sharing online that gives it the mass reach. And I would argue that the type of advertisements that are being created for those global moments are brand-led as opposed to product-led. They're not going in trying to sell a shoe in the middle of the Super Bowl. They're talking, if you use Nike for an example... They're talking about how every single person with an athlete, uh, sorry, with a body, is an athlete. Is an athlete. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so, which is very much on brand. Which is on brand, and that's shareable. You know, that's something that they, everyone can buy into. So, that's been the shift, I think, from the way that those big, sort of big agencies are crafting those messages through broadcast. It is becoming more brand-led, I would say. So, Caleb, I just want to take you back to something you mentioned earlier, which is the uh, the customer journey. Yeah. You know, and, and there is a lot of marketers are putting a lot of effort into actually mapping the customer journey. Yes. The thing that always cracks me up is how linear that is. Yeah. You know, it's like point touch point A, touch point B, touch point C. Yeah. Um, in your experience, personal experience, is that how you make uh, purchase uh, decisions? No. Because it's not mine either. I've no. never done a linear uh, process. We are um, we're emotional beings and our choices are influenced by the weather, you know, family situation. You, you can, and also you've got to remember that we're also, we're not on a linear curve in terms of our, our lifetime of experience. So, you know, as... The, a brand might think that they've un- they understand that customer in that moment in time. Well, the next day, they've had more worldly experiences. They're a day older. They, you know, their perception of the world is changing as well. So, yeah, I definitely don't think that trying to take this the linear snapshot of the customer is going to work. Um, I think it might help inform from a from a marketer's perspective, getting into personas, and if you want to start to understand. 20 year olds but you know that data set is actually only as good as you know the paper it was written on in a month's time there could be a new global trend that was launched through a social media platform and you know all of those insights that you thought you had on that customer are completely gone through out the window yeah i see it as trying to simplify what is incredibly complex yeah because you know i the, uh, the way customers, the way I make decisions is a bit like the randomness of electrons in the universe. You know, yeah. you fly around, fly around. You might be at any particular point in the customer journey mm-hmm. at that time, but it yeah. doesn't mean that I'm going to go to the next step. Yeah. You know, I'll go off and do other things. Or randomly, I might land and just buy straight away. Yeah. And so I've condensed the whole customer journey into three or four minutes, as long as it takes to transact online and have the thing delivered. Well, that's, that's an interesting point in that um, the transaction now, I think, is critical in terms of the sales process. You have 
uh, a lot more buying power, obviously, in, the, in younger generations. And there's a lot of research being done on, you know, millennial spending habits. Um, but you also look at, I think it was um, Afterpay and ZipPay mm. and all of these, which essentially is, you know, my grandmother would say, well, I had lay-by. It's, it's not too... Except she couldn't pick it up until she paid it well, off. That's the difference. Yeah. And that's this is where this, you know, um, societally we are now, we expect things now. You know, everyone wants it now. They don't want to wait until Instant gratification. Instant gratification. And social's driving that, um, you know, so... so I think that from a from a marketer's perspective, how do you deliver instant gratification to the customer um, is a is an interesting challenge, you know, in terms of, and I think that's where uh, simplifying the message is, is becoming critical. I think any sort of form of marketing that is complicated or needs to be explained in a 10-page deck um, is probably not going to get the cut through in terms of the instant gratification that the customer is looking for, um, which is changing the way that we're marketing to people as well. So, we're, you know, we're starting to just at a base level, simplify the message and think about the emotional triggers behind those messages that we're talking about or those brand experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's, that's, that's kind of another big shift that we're seeing as well. The other, um, the other thing I want to um, share with you and get your impression of is Nick Law, who's chief creative officer at Publicis Group. When he was at RGA as head chief creative, he talked about traditional advertising is storytelling. Mm -hmm. You tell the story. Then there's the uh, story sort of acting or experience. And then there's the actual, um, sorry, the story play. So you play it out and get... And then there's the actual experience, actually getting people to come as close as possible to the experience of the brand, right? And he said, when people experience a brand, it's infinitely more powerful than just hearing the story about the brand. Yeah. Is that part of the thinking when you are mapping out brand experiences? 100%. And what we're trying to do now in terms of, a, is, is, of curating that brand experience is actually make the customer part of the original storytelling narrative. So how can you as an individual actually get a little bit closer to that brand in a way that you can engage with it, talk to it, relate with it, it understands your potential values and and if you can weave those two narratives together from the traditional storytelling approach to the physical experiencing of the brand, there's a really powerful connection that can be made. And that's when you know, go back to word of mouth that you'll go and tell your closest friend yeah. that, wow, the, um, the watch that I'm wearing or the shoes that I'm running in or the you know, IT platform that finally actually speaks to me as a human um, is, is something that I want to talk about. And that's, that, that's the power of a good brand experience. Well, yeah, he, he, he um, used an example to demonstrate that. He said, you know, go back to caveman times. Yep. Uh, they'd come back from the hunt and they'd be sitting around the campfire and talking about how they hunted down the woolly mammoth, right? And then the second stage was actually getting up and acting it out and showing them how they hunted down the woolly mammoth. Yeah. But to actually take them 
take those people and let them come on the hunt and yeah. do it themselves and experience what that's like for themselves yeah. is infinitely more powerful and obviously infinitely more shareable. There was a um, Khan Lion case study that I watched. It was in Brazil, and I think I need to credit, I'm going to say it's Ogilvy, but yeah, not the point. Um, it was called Soccer Mums, and there was a Brazilian football club that had um, multiple injuries through physical fights happening at these South American football games. They're pretty intense, I would imagine, between the two teams. And oh, I thought you were going to say between the mums on the sideline. No, 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 Because that would yeah. be Roselle well, or something. Yeah, that could happen anywhere here in Sydney. Um, <laughs> Belmain. <laughs> no, 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 into, into big club football games. Yeah. And um, there was a, the insight was that you are less least likely to fight in front of your mum. And so what they did was they did a, a campaign where they took all of the mums of the roughest um, hooligans from both teams and took them to the game and made them the security. And this was not just a marketing campaign. It was actually like a bit of a, I suppose, a societal test of whether this was going to work or not. And there wasn't an incident. And all of these hooligans were actually a bit taken back that their mum was there in front of them to... And so 80,000 people, whoever many were, that were at that game, got to have a completely different brand experience. experience. Yep. Um, and for those hooligans who traditionally would fly off the rails when their team didn't score the goal and punch the guy next to him, who might be from a different club, it was a very different experience. And then from a case study perspective, the way that they told that story and brought it to life through traditional broadcast was a really beautiful story. So mm. there's, there are great ways that you can find... Um, you know, that, that live brand experience of going to see your favourite football team play and how that can translate then back into a broadcast message that might make you an even bigger fan of the club or what it, in that case that it was. Mm. So. Now, Caleb, earlier you touched on the point around that brands actually, brand experience is at every touch point, yeah. at every interaction between the consumer and the, and the brand or the business. Marketers rarely get to control or influence all those touch points. Yeah, I can imagine that a lot of the work that you guys um, that you guys are doing at Project Worldwide is where marketers can influence that. Yeah. But what about the call centre and what about the retail experience, which is often outside of a marketer's remit? Because many marketing departments are only the comms department. You know, they really only have a few levers to pull. Yeah. How, how do you help marketers actually start to look at the whole of the customer experience, the brand experience? If I gave you the, the answer to that, then I'd, I'd be out of a job. Uh, okay. But, but I think the, there's, there's, there's two parts to that. One... Well, don't give me the whole answer. Just no, no, give me an give overview. You, I'll give you an overview. Of it. A taster. <laughs> So that the, everyone listening will be phoning you to find out what the uh, secret sauce secret is. Secret sauce. Um, the 11 herbs and spices. There's a reason why the traditional consulting companies are so interested in the marketing landscape. And, and I think your question then is, is a big part of that. Um, traditionally, marketers haven't been able to um, influence the brand at all of those individual touch points. Whereas where they haven't been able to influence, you've probably got, you'd need the ear of the uh, chief technology officer or the mm. CEO. Or, and those relationships are held with 
the PWCs and the Deloitte's and the, so if you can if for those guys if they can own that piece which they do already and then also have the ear of the marketing team all of a sudden the messaging that you're trying to drive as an organization from a marketing perspective can actually infiltrate every single part of, of that organization um, so I think I think that's one of the reasons why they're you know so interested in in that end-to-end piece for us I would say that there's very few moments that CEOs of global organizations feel more nervous or pressured than the minute before they get on stage to give a, an address to the public or their internal staff or to to anyone really. It's a, it's a very vulnerable moment before you kind of you present something. Event organizations, large, big or small, are in a very powerful position in that they build the trust of the C-suite by building those relationships um, in, in those moments. And so I personally think that the event organisations or the experiential agencies are in a very powerful place to start to get the ear of uh, those senior executives and start to shift the way that they think about how they interact with the customer. Um, all of the divisions of, of an organisation will have a kickoff event or a uh, an internal you know, meeting or a, there'll be at some point one-on-one interaction that will probably require a third-party agency to come in. And that's where I think understanding the organisation strategy mm-hmm. yeah, and getting under the hood of you know, uh, what that business is trying to do. And I think you know, um, Project Worldwide doesn't work with Telstra. Uh, but we've kind of, you know, we've watched that journey over the last few years and, you know, they're going through a major transformation at the moment and they'll continue. Um, and I think there's a really interesting, uh, who, whoever their agencies are, I actually don't know. Um, I, I reckon they're quite integrated in the way that their messaging and their marketing and that what their CEO's vision is mm-hmm. and they're all coming together at the moment to try and make sure that, they do what's right by the customer, which is a tough job. Yeah, it's a very tough job in that particular because it's so competitive. It's constantly yeah. changing and there's uh, high expectations and yeah. uh, lots of opportunity to get it wrong. It's interesting. You, you've got you know, the telco space. You, know, you think there's, in Australia, Optus, Vodafone and, and Telstra. And they're the, you know, the major TPG. TPG. And there's a couple of... I suppose boost and there's and they're all affiliates I yeah, suppose yeah. of one of the other networks. But um, what a captive market those those companies have. You know, to only really have three to f- let's say five choices. Mm. You know, I couldn't name another industry vertical where you've got three to five choices as a customer of of where to go. Because I think there's eighteen individual um, automotive brands in Australia. However, hundreds of many uh, fashion brands that you can insurance, choose from. financial insurance services, financial services. Like there might be only three, you know, the big three banks, but there's fifty other banking, you know, organisations that you can. Four supermarket chains. That's 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 another one that I was going to. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So so but, there but, are a few oligopolies in, yeah, still yeah, in still Australia, Australia because of the size of the market. But yeah, yeah. you're right. It's 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 still a relatively closed shop but highly competitive even amongst those those yeah. uh five five yeah and yeah. i think if you can think back to the brand experience um talking about like aldi um and i've never really thought about aldi but they've challenged the 
Coles and Woolworths yeah. with a totally different a totally proposition different and experience. Yeah. And and that brand experience is probably not the premium. It's a very different experience mm. walking into an Aldi as opposed to walking into you know a Woolworths in an you know uh, upmarket suburb. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, the customer wants good value. Yeah. And they're prepared to maybe not have the compromise shop, some things, some things for others. Order, yeah. you know. So that's where a good brand experience is. is is only as good as what the customer actually wants. Caleb, we've run out of time. Thank you for uh, coming and having a chat. My pleasure. Uh, one last question. Yeah. Um, who has done the worst brand experience in your experience? Mm-hmm.